Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 333rd edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, the second day of Ipsalusa, and we'll have more on that later in the broadcast. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. Good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, from steamy Florida, and hello, everyone. <laughs> uh, nice to have you with us again, uh, Erica. And you and our special guest, Stacey Elliott, have been working on an issue that... Uh, well, it's an issue that could trigger an audit for overpayment. It's an issue that, of course, as I understand it, it's a problem for docs and coders as well. Could you give us a little preview? Uh, yeah. So Stacy contacted me to discuss how to code bronchoalveolar lavage and PCS, and I thought it was a very interesting conundrum, so I brought it to you. Yes, indeed, you did. Uh, looking forward to hearing from both of you later in the broadcast. And coming up in a couple of minutes, we're going to have a legislative update from Talk 10 Tuesday's legislative analyst, Rhonda Teller. And also on the broadcast is CDI expert, Glenn Krause. Yes, Glenn's going to be reporting on how physician documentation can have an impact on the revenue cycle. And speaking of CDI, you've got a poll question this morning. Today we're asking if your CDI team participates in patient rounds. So here are your choices. Option one, yes, single service line once a week. Option two, yes, single service line more than once a week. Option three, yes, multiple service lines. Option four, no, wow, I wish we did. And option five, no, and no plans to. So select the answer that best represents you and your facility, and we will review the results of the survey later in the broadcast. Thanks, Erica, very much. We have much to report during this broadcast, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell. He's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to visit the new ICD-10 Monitor webcast subscription portal. See the link in the handout tab in today's program or visit the ICD University web store. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. We're going to get a little bit into coding, but we're going to talk about some national issues in terms of reimbursement. Uh, first, we're going to talk a little bit about disproportionate share hospital payments, which have been plummeting as uh, the impact of the reduction in uninsured patients has impacted the calculation. So the largest portion of the payments for disproportionate share hospitals, hospitals that are serving uh, an uninsured population, have been cut by 58% as provisions of the Accountable Care Act have, have come into play. Um, this has uh, been something that, that was expected, but certainly there's a lot of dynamic tension in this area in between an administration that obviously does not like the Accountable Care Act and would like to see it go away. And at the same time, we have these fairly large uh, cuts that are happening to, uh, to hospitals that are in states that did not participate in the expansion. So uh, the states that participated in the expansion of Medicare saw their disproportionate share hospital payments skyrocket, while states like the one I'm in, a Florida saw their, their payments actually plummet. Uh, along the same vein, there is actually a separate payment that is made for disproportionate share hospital payments on the state side, on the Medicaid side. And uh, we are now seeing a $2 billion per year cut in those payments start to take effect. So hospitals that serve these disproportionate share uh, patient populations are seeing their federal payments being greatly reduced. 
We're also looking at some potentially expensive changes for critical access hospitals. Uh, part of the Accountable Care Act required uh, large changes to the rules uh, on how critical access hospitals are licensed and what they have to do. Uh, specifically, there are some requirements that we're looking for final regulations to come out along for non-discrimination rules. Uh, infection controls, things that are going to be very expensive. Critical access hospitals have also been hit by 340B drug cuts. Starting January 1st, uh, the 340B hospital program uh, uh, providers, including all critical access hospitals, have to start using the JG modifier. And the use of the JG modifier will cause a automatic rate reduction to uh, ASP minus 22.5%. So uh, we see that critical access hospitals are definitely in the crosshairs. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a nationally recognized expert on regulatory matters, including the False Claims Act, ZPIC audits, and the OIG. It's Tuesday, it's July 24, 2018, and it's the second day of Palooza. It's a summer school to learn more about the inpatient perspective payment system, the IPPS. You're listening to the 333rd edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by HRS. Your wound care center may be providing excellent patient care, but when it comes time for reimbursement, are you receiving revenue for the resources consumed by your patients? Does your documentation support the severity of illness of the patients? Good patient care is important, but if your center fails to receive appropriate revenue, its doors may soon close. Wound care coding and billing often carry unique challenges compared to other specialties. Join us for a complimentary special edition broadcast this Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern. HRS will review ICD-10 CM codes and coding guidelines applicable to wound care services. To attend, simply click on the Register button in the handout section of this program or visit the ICD University web store. Now's the time for Dateline Washington featuring Talk 10 Tuesday legislative analyst Rhonda Teller. Good morning, Rhonda. Hey, a lot of news is coming out of Washington these days. What do we really need to know? Good morning, Chuck. It is a busy summer in D.C. Recently, we had proposed regulations published, the physician fee schedule that includes the quality payment program, or some people may know this as MACRA. That's a 1,400-plus page regulation, and we're soon to see regulations on accountable care organizations, as well as the hospital outpatient prospective payment. There's been hearings on Capitol Hill, both in the House and the Senate. Last week, the HELP Committee on the Senate had a hearing called Reducing Healthcare Costs, Eliminating Excess Healthcare Spending and Improving Quality and Value. Last month, the House Ways and Means Committee had a hearing uh, also on, um, actually it was last week too, modernizing the Stark Law to ensure successful transition from volume to value in the Medicare program. If anyone is really interested in seeing how hearings go, they can certainly go to the committee site and replay the hearing. Um, as has been widely reported, Secretary of Health and Human Services, Azar, has four priorities, and he is actually named senior advisors in those areas. A big focus, too, of the administration comes through in listening sessions and in regulations, and it's related to it reducing administrative burden for clinicians. Um, the four particular senior advisors are Adam Bowler, who currently heads the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, where the alternative payment models and the advanced alternative payment models under QPP are coming out. He's 
the Senior Advisor for Value-Based Transformation. He was named that in addition to his CMMI role last week. There's also Jim Parker, the Senior Advisor for Health Reform, Dan Best, the Senior Advisor for Drug Pricing Reform, and Dr. Britt Girard, the Senior Advisor for Opioid and Mental Health Policy. I would say, too, that one other thing that's happening is the House is still looking at doing some rollback of the Affordable Care Act taxes, including a repeal of the medical device tax and a delay in the health insurance tax. We may see something this week before the House goes out on a five-week recess. In May, the administration published the blueprint on drugs. You've seen a lot in the media about drug pricing. You've seen a lot that the administration has said both through uh, President Trump as well as Secretary Azar. They then issued a request for information whose comment period recently closed, and I understand they received 3,000 comments. There's also some requests for information that are embedded actually in rules. There's one in the physician fee schedule on electronic health records. There are a few other ones that have come out earlier in the year on the future director Uh, for CMMI as well as direct provider contracting. On the ACA front, CMS decided earlier this month to pause payments on risk adjustment transfers to insurers. How that works is it requires insurers with high profits to pay into a program that helps fund insurers with lower profits to avoid cherry-picking of patients. Well, I acknowledge that's not a great term, so no one insurer suffers catastrophic financial losses. There was also an association health plan final rule published. And then I would say there are things going on in the states. Um, There's a case... Uh, Texas versus Azar in the premises that if the Affordable Care Act individual mandate is unconstitutional, the rest of ACA is also. And then depending on what your politics are, there is a bright spot with states filing 1332 innovation waivers to have the individual mandate back in their particular states. I just saw something this morning. D.C. was one of them. Um, where the and the Congress can actually overrule some of the things that happen in D.C. Um, and there is some movement to move against that in D.C. Um, I think that's more than enough in terms of everything that's going on in D.C. So I'll take it back to you, Erica. Thank you, Rhonda. That was quite something. That was Talk Ten Tuesday legislative analyst Rhonda Tom. Rhonda is a member of the HIMSS Professional Development Committee. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thanks very much, Rhonda. And a program note, you can learn more about all the inpatient prospective payment system final rules during Ipspalooza. That's Ipspalooza. It's a summer school about the IPPS. Now, just how much of an impact does position documentation have on the revenue cycle here now? With the Talk to Tuesday CDI report, is Glenn Krause. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. Hey, listen, the revenue cycle is defined by the uh, Healthcare Financial Management Association. It's defined as all administrative and clinical functions that contribute to the capture, management, and collection of patient service revenue. In other words, it is a term that includes the entire life of the patient account from creation to payment. The CDI profession, both individually and collectively, play a critical role in the revenue cycle through enhancement and communication of patient care. When I refer to communication of patient care, I'm referring to the entire record and the ability to extract optimal value from the record for the mutual benefit of the patient, the physician, and all relevant healthcare stakeholders. Our ability to contribute to the achievement of a high-performing revenue cycle 
is directly proportional to our ability to achieve solid improvement in the quality and completeness of the documentation. This entails going way beyond our current process of solidifying clinical diagnosis in a medical record that impact reimbursement and or quality scores. I have never quite understood what the real value is in securing diagnosis that on face value increase gross reimbursement when what really matters is net patient revenue, that is how much the hospital collects from third-party payers from submitted claims. We must recognize that just because uh, a record is coded and billed a specific DRG doesn't necessarily mean the third-party payer pays the claim under the same DRG. Uh, we are all way too familiar with medical necessity denials, DRG downcodes, and clinical validation denials from third-party payers. In some ways, the current processes of CDI rooted in ongoing repetitive queries in the name of documentation improvement actually negatively impact and detract from the revenue cycle to increase costs to collect. All these ongoing pervasive actions on the part of payers are rooted in sufficient, poor, conflicting documentation that allows payers to refute the diagnosis submitted on medical necessity for hospital-level care. So where does a profession need to do? What do we need to do to show up on alignment and integration with the revenue cycle? For starters, we must recognize the significant limitations of current CDI processes. Uh, the vision, goals, and objectives of CDI should be to enhance the quality and completeness of documentation right from the start. That is the ED documentation. This is where CDI should start striving to work with physicians and advanced practice care staff in the ED to accurately capture and report and reflect the patient presentation, acuity, and treatment. So really, uh, in, with my staff, what we're trying to really accomplish is the is the ability to uh, to reflect the the acuity of the patient's uh, presentation, where in the history of present illness, chief complaint, nature of present uh, present illness. This is uh, where our UR people and our case manager are really struggling with demonstrating the acuity of the care of the patient and how the patient needs to be in a hospital level of care. Oftentimes, what I find is a mere list of data points and abnormal findings within the assessment in the ED, the same goes for the history and physical, hard to justify admission under the two midnight rule and reasonable expectations of at least two midnights in the hospital with the diagnosis in the ED. Here's some of the common uh, data points or elements that I see as documentation, leukocytosis, fever, bandemia, bacteremia, hematuria, without further qualifications as to provisional diagnosis or diagnosis. Uh, I had one just yesterday that was denied right here on my desk where the ER doctor and the uh, the admitting physician mentioned that uh, patients admitted for excruciating back pain needs pain control, failed outpatient treatment. The only, the only problem with that is that the the extent of the patient's pain was not well described in the history and physical, nor the uh, in the history of present illness of the ED documentation or the or the uh, H and P. So it's really difficult uh, for our uh, colleagues in UR and case management to seek authorization for particular uh, patients who definitely need to be in the hospital. However, the situation is that on paper, on face value, we don't see acuity. So I'm really urging people, our CDI, to take a hard look at what we're doing. I'm not saying that uh, 
securing diagnosis is important is not important because it's vitally important. Really, what's needed is a situation where we improve the documentation, enhance the value before the patient. Uh, even gets to the floor and and have a good H and P of what brought the patient into the hospital, what was the doctor thinking. This supports the revenue cycle by solidifying medical necessity. And uh, I want to call your attention just briefly to an article I was published last week. Physician clinical documentation: the lifeblood of the revenue cycle. It has some additional points, and I'd like to turn it over to Erica, please. Thank you, Glenn. You're telling everyone that they should make the patient look as sick in the record as they look in real life. I completely agree with that. Glenn is the CDI Manager at University Health Systems in Las Vegas. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you very much, Glenn. And you can read Glenn's excellent article on CDI on our homepage at icd10monitor.com. You know, at the top of the broadcast, I mentioned that our special guest today, Stacey Elliott, and our own Dr. Erica Reamer, well, they've been researching a subject that poses a quandary for coders. Here now to explain and to introduce our special guest is the aforementioned Dr. Erica Reamer. So our special guest is Stacy Elliott. Stacy is an inpatient compliance specialist for a major health system. Here now with the first part of our lead story uh, reporting on bronchoalveolar lavage is Stacy Elliott. And I'll follow up with my comments after Stacy. Thank you, Erica. Good morning, everyone. I know we are all familiar with the real estate mantra, it's all about location, location, and location. Well, the same could be said for a procedure reported with an incorrect body part value leading to an improper payment. I'm talking about coding bronchoalveolar lavage, or BAL, as it continues to be a documentation nightmare for physicians and a quandary among coders. You see, misunderstood physician documentation and incorrect coding advice are inadvertently causing BALs to be grouped to a surgical DRG, and that's where location, location, location comes in. Should the body part for BAL be the bronchus or the lung lobes? It is about location. And here's the problem. Physicians often use specific right and left lung lobe parts to geographically indicate the location of the bronchoscope within the bronchial tree where the BAL is performed. Coders may misinterpret the documentation to mean the the physician has, in fact, penetrated the lumen of the bronchus and entered the lung lobe encasing the bronchial tree. The coder then mistakenly assigns a lung lobe body part that results in DRG assignment indicating an OR procedure was performed. Now, when documentation does not clearly indicate that the wall of the bronchus was penetrated or an instrument was used to push past the terminal bronchioles into the lung lobe, then physician references two lobes or lung lobes in their BAL procedure note pertain to the location site where the bronchoscope is advanced to instill the sterile saline solution, usually within the smaller branches of the bronchus. If documentation is missing or unclear regarding whether a procedure performed via bronchoscopy was endobronchial or transbronchial, the physician should be queried. In my opinion, the American Hospital Association's Coding Clinic Advice, published in 2017, contains misinformation regarding the appropriate body part 
that should be used for BAL. The coding clinic indicates that BAL involves sampling alveoli of the lung. Those are the small sacs within lung lobes. The coding clinic advises that a lung lobe body part value should be used for a BAL as it more accurately captures the intent of the procedure. The the biggest issue with that advice is the fact that alveoli tissue or sacs are not biopsied during a simple BAL procedure. Secondly, per ICD-10 PCS guidelines, the body part value should reflect the site of where the procedure was performed, not the intent of the procedure. Again, it's about location. A BAL reported with a lung lobe body part can often result in a very significant overpayment, raising a red flag and perhaps triggering an improper payment audit by CMS or the OIG. I have contacted the coding clinic about this important issue, but in the meantime, facilities are receiving improper reimbursements for BALs reported with incorrect body part values. For more details on how you can avoid finding yourself in the crosshairs of a BAL audit, be sure to read my article in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor e-news. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Stacy. Stacy Elliott is an inpatient compliance specialist for a major health system. Tuck, our friend Ron Hirsch connected Stacy and me at the end of June. I'm his go-to person for all things ICD-10. Stacy wanted my opinion on this question about bronchoalveolar lavage. There are a few key points which I think are worthy of my mention, reiterating Stacy. First, if you're using an encoder and you recognize it is leading you to the wrong place, you are not supposed to blindly follow it. You would need to use, and I hope you can all hear my reverence over the airwaves, the book. If I were to code any old BAL, I would go to med surge, then go to respiratory system, and then drainage. And then when I would get to the body part, I would pick the specific bronchus with laterality. You don't really stick the bronchoscope all the way into the alveolar sacs. We should be showing the the, um, graphic. And you can see that you go into a bronchus, you instill fluid distally, and then aspirate it back out. It is usually done for diagnostic purposes, but on occasion it is therapeutic, like for alveolar proteinosis. Remember that the coding in PCS is related to the intent of and what you accomplished in the procedure. The confusion the coding clinic respondent had is in not understanding that the alveoli are the terminus where the bronchial tree ends. The trachea divides into the right and left main or primary bronchi, and these divide into secondary and tertiary bronchi, into bronchioles, and end in the alveoli, which happen to be housed in the lung. I think of it this way. The inside of the alveoli are in the bronchial tree. The outside of the alveoli are part of the lung. If you had to remove a cluster of alveoli, you would need to violate the barrier between bronchial tree and the rest of the lower respiratory system, and you would then be removing a piece of lung proper. To say that the body part for a BAL is the lung would be almost analogous to saying that taking a gallstone out of the gallbladder is an extirpation of the liver. 
the gallbladder has its own body part designation, even if it is physically nestled in the liver. The bronchus and the lung are not synonymous body parts. If, on the other hand, your surgeon makes a puncture or incision in the bronchus to remove some lung tissue, transbronchial, you are no longer coding a bronchoalveolar lavage but a lung biopsy, and you code an excision of specific lobe and laterality, lung. This pops you into a surgical DRG, which brings me to my final point. The concern is that we want to be sure that we are accurately representing the seriousness of the procedure and getting appropriately reimbursed. We do not want to land in a surgical DRG when it is not warranted. Remember when doing an arterial line popped us erroneously into a surgical DRG? Your institution might like the extra money for a surgical DRG now, but they will not like having to give it back two years from now, nor will they like the OIG imposing penalties for intentional fraud. I want to thank Stacy for bringing this topic to my attention. I hope we can count on all of you listening to continue the fight to make sure that ICD-10 is accurately portraying what is really happening to the patient. Send Coding Clinic your questions and concerns. Collectively, we can be the change. Thanks, Erica, very much. And Stacy, thank you for your excellent story. You can read Stacy's reporting on today's ICD-10 Monitor homepage. It was in our e-news earlier today. Thanks again. Uh, Erica, let's uh, take a moment and take a look at the results of today's Talk 10 Tuesday listener survey. So earlier we asked a poll, does your CDI team participate in patient rounds? This is something that's very interesting to me because I think that it's very helpful to have a relationship between the doctors and the CDSs, and I think that going on rounds with them can be very helpful because you can get um, queries asked, answered, and closed right in real time. So, does your CDI team participate in patient rounds? Yes, single service line once a week is 8%. Yes, single service line more than once a week is 8%. Yes, multiple service lines is 19%. That's great. No, wow, I wish we did, 32%. And then no, no plans to is also 32%. So I I have to say that um, it does not surprise me that some of you are doing it right now. So it looks like uh, I'm not very good at math, 27, uh, 35% of us, give or take, are doing some sort of patient rounds. And then 32% of you wish you were doing them. And I think that it should be something that once you really get your CDI program shored up, you should consider starting to roll it out. You may want to start um, in the places where you have found that you had a lot of uh, opportunity for education. Um, and, you know, or you might find that it's by volume, so you're hospitalists. Uh, but I think that it is actually a very um, useful tool. Uh, I think that people who... Um, are remote, can come back in, you know, once a week and just have a relationship with the doctors so that when they send them a query, they, you know, they know who's sending it and they answer you. So that's what I have to say about this, Chuck. Thanks for the poll. Uh, question, though, what, what inspired you to think of this poll this morning? Some of my clients have been starting to do this. We, when I was a physician advisor, we started um, doing rounds, and I actually would do the first rounds and the CDI professional would come with me, and they would watch me, and I would model, and then they would take it from there. Um, I actually have started uh, putting together some 
um, education on how to do rounds because I think one of the things that's a problem would be just to take a CDI and just throw them in the melee without giving them any, you know, guidance or training. So I think that that's kind of important is trying to get them prepared so that they put their best foot forward when they start doing rounds. Very good. Thanks, Erica, very much. Uh, I want to thank you all for being on our program today. Uh, a couple of questions came in. We're not going to have a chance to answer them during this live broadcast. We'll make every effort to answer those questions after this broadcast. And I want to thank our guests for being with us today. Uh, I want to thank Glenn Krauss, Tim Powell, Rhonda Teller, our special guest, Stacey Elliott, and, of course, Dr. Erica Reamer. Hope you're going to join us next Tuesday for another edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. That's when we're going to be reporting on the new ICD-10Z codes and some of the other proposed changes in the ICD-10 rules that are being proposed right now. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck speaking on behalf of Dr. Eric Reamer and everyone here at Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor. 